Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. sermon this morning is entitled, The Father of Mercies and the Father of Lies. I already know those two titles. The Holy Spirit thought it was important that we would understand how remarkably different the God of the universe is and our adversary, the devil. It is the Lord Christ in John chapter 8 who gives Satan the title, The Father of Lies. And it is the Holy Spirit who gives the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, refers to God the Father as the Father of mercies. The Father of mercies. And I want you to remember the rest of your life that when you see the evidence in your life of the Father of lies, that you would flee to the Father of mercies. In Luke chapter 8, there are a number of different things happening in that chapter, but one of them is the Lord Christ is going to a man's house to heal his daughter. And on his way, a woman who had been bleeding for years and years and years and gone to many physicians and spent all that she had, came to Christ in the midst of the crowd and worked her way to the front, touched the hem of his garment, and was healed. We read that story, and we know that that's true, those of us who are familiar with it. We don't doubt that that's true. And yet we come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, failing to recognize that that's what Luke chapter 8 is about. That every one of us here this morning are bustling all about the Word of God. But those who come in faith, those who come in biblical hope, God is strong, God is mighty, and God is good, may leave here today with a great transformation. Jesus says to the disciples, when they wonder why he says, who touched me? He says, I felt the power go out from me. Will the Lord Christ say today, Regarding you, I felt the power go out from me. We've been looking at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The first week we looked at good King Asa. We made the point that there have been many Reformations in the past. That good King Asa brought about great Reformation. Good King Asa was the great-grandson of Solomon. He brought about great revival in 2 Corinthians 15 
after having been delivered miraculously in Second Chronicles 15. In Second Chronicles 14, he was delivered miraculously from the Ethiopians by God. And it happened in such a way that everybody said, this is the Lord's doing. And then in chapter 16, the northern forces of Israel come against the southern forces of Judah. And instead of remembering what God had done, he enters into a worldly alliance with a pagan king to the east. And God sends a prophet to rebuke him and say, didn't you remember what God did for you? Asa is so bothered by the prophet that he has him imprisoned. And we want to learn that lesson, that we can have a teachable spirit at some point in our lives and bring reformation and encourage others toward reformation, and then ourselves need reformation. And then we looked at the reality that as we continue studying to the 500th anniversary and talking about these things, we looked at God's glory in impossible circumstances and we talked about the passage in Isaiah 9 that God promises the Messiah to come. And we want to remember that God's glory is set forth in impossible circumstances. He often makes things very difficult so that when the deliverance comes, everyone will understand this is the Lord's doing. And then we looked at the Reformation in context of Renaissance and Enlightenment. And we said that the Renaissance is characterized, which came before, it's characterized by learning, and we ourselves want to be learners. Because the Reformation is characterized by salvation. There is something important. There's one thing needful, and that is for man to be right with God. Martin Luther was reading his Bible, mindful of his sin, and thinking about eternity. And as he read his Bible, mindful of his sin, and thinking about eternity, he kept asking the question, what must I do to be saved? Reformation is about salvation. And then we talked about enlightenment, which came after this Reformation, which is license, where people begin to turn the glorious truths now upon themselves, seeking personal peace and happiness, rather than the glory of God and the goodness of salt and light upon the earth through the God's kingdom. Today we're going to be looking at the reality of God's mercy in every difficult circumstance. The evil one comes to try to kill and to destroy. And God is present for his people in mercy because he is the father of mercies. Will you stand on the reading of God's words? We turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Most of you know by now that 2 Corinthians is very autobiographical. His authority has been challenged and questioned, and so he writes to the church at Corinth this technically the fourth time, but we call it Second Corinthians. He's writing to them and clarifying to them that he does indeed have authority from God, and that the afflictions that he has encountered are simply a red badge of courage, if you will. They are not an indication. Because he has encountered affliction, they are no indication that he does not speak with authority. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, 
so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Will you pray with me, please? God, there are thousands and thousands and millions around the world this day that are bumping in to your word as it goes forth being preached. It is all around us. And how few will you be able to say this day, at the end of the day, I felt the power go out from me. And yet, God, in our sobriety and clarity, we recognize how great a need we have. That the lady with the bleeding for years and years and having spent all she had on the doctors has nothing on us. We are still unable to control our tongues and unable to enliven our hands and unable to forgive from our hearts. Unable to stand firm in the faith. Unable to do everything in love. And the evidence is the wounds all around us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us. We pray, Lord, increase our faith. That we might, with the eyes of faith, touch the hem of your garment this day in the preaching of your word. And be healed. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation beginning October 31st, 1517, we tend to think of two chief events, and they are, of course, the posting of the 95 Theses on the doors of Wittenberg. They were, of course, posted in Latin with the intent of scholarly debate. Someone took them down, translated them into German, 
and printed them and circulated them throughout Germany. And that's where the fame came, if you will, and they reached their way all the way down to the Pope in Rome. So we think of that great event of the 95 Theses. The second great event that we kind of have some knowledge of is the trial that occurred as a result of that. The Pope granted Luther an opportunity to repent, to recant these teachings. And that expired on the 3rd of January, 1521. And Martin Luther had not repented. He had given him three years, ultimately, over the period of the correspondence. But Martin Luther had not. In fact, he'd grown bolder and bolder and louder and louder. And so the Pope asked Charles V, the emperor, to convene a council for the express purpose of trying Martin Luther with the very much intent of condemning him and executing him. But Charles V owed a favor to Frederick the Wise, who was the king in the region where Martin Luther lived. And Frederick the Wise actually started the university where Martin Luther was a professor. And Charles V owed him a favor. I won't go into the details this morning, but it had to do with him becoming emperor. Frederick the Wise paved the ground for that. And Charles V knew that. And so Frederick the Wise said, I'll send him, but you have to guarantee that he'll be safe. And the emperor gave him a 21-day safe travel. And so he came to the trial, which is called the Diet of Worms. He comes. It begins January 21st, 1521. And it actually goes for almost four months. That is, the meetings, the discussions. But Martin Luther himself is only there for a couple of days. And so we find out that the reality is there is great concern here. Everybody is aware that the Pope is very upset. And they're aware this time they believe the Pope has great ability to bring condemnation in this life and in the life to come. The Pope sends emissaries to Germany to tell them to deliver Martin Luther before Charles guarantees his freedom, his safe passage. One of the emissaries' names is Jerome Aleander, and this is what he says to the Germans publicly when he arrives in Wittenberg. He says, if you Germans who pay least into the Pope's treasury shake off his yoke, we shall see to it that you mutually kill yourselves and wade in your own blood. He's trying to get the crowd concerned that they will quickly turn over Martin Luther and let all this go. And that's how serious the situation was. And Martin Luther knew that. And so when they ask him, will you go to the Diet of Worms? He says, I shall go to Worms. Though there be as many devils there as tiles on the roofs. Much like Paul himself saying, no, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, even though I've been told that it could be my death. So Martin Luther arrives April 17th, 1521. When he arrives, they, I've told you before, they have the books out there. There's 25 different books that he's written. And they ask him simply two questions. Are these your books? And will you recant from these teachings? As you recall, it took quite a while to decide which one were these his books. And as he went through the books, he actually stacked them in three sections. And he concluded, yes, they're all my books. And one of the piles, he said, these books over here are just simply teaching on evangelical doctrine that probably no one here would have any question about. Just my teaching on the Bible in general. And so, no, of course I can't recant these. And then the second pile of books, he said, these teachings, these books, 
are addressing the tyranny and the corruption of the papacy. I couldn't possibly recant from those. And then this third pile over here, these are the books that I actually wrote against people who tried to defend the tyranny and the corruption of the papacy. And while I probably said some things in there that went a little too far, I can't recant, because if I do, people will think I'm recanting of the truth that's in them. And so I can't recant of any of these things. And that's where the questioning began as to trying to get him to condemn himself very specifically, which is very difficult to do. But in the process, he's answering back and forth, and he's being tried, he's being examined and cross-examined, if you will. But before he begins answering, they remind him that he's speaking to the emperor right here, who's sitting just a few feet from him. The emperor at that time was 17 years younger than Luther. Luther was in his late 30s at the time. And the emperor is 17 years younger at the time. He's a very, very young emperor. Luther looks at him straight in the face and he reminds him that there have been great kings of the past who have made great errors concerning the people of God. And he reminds the emperor of Pharaoh and how foolish he was when God had sent him so many signs and wonders, but he wouldn't listen. And he reminds the emperor about Nebuchadnezzar who was vaulted with pride, and God humbled him mightily. And he reminds him about the bad kings of Israel. And he encourages him to take heed that how he conducts himself here today will affect his soul. Martin Luther was astonishingly bold, and yet true and right. It was good what he said. And so he's trying to help them out. He's trying to help them see that There are great corruptions in the papacy and great wrongs in the selling of indulgences as they tried to free people from hell with money. And he knew that wasn't biblical. So finally they tell him, you know, will you recant or not? They get pretty upset with him. And then he has the famous words to conclude his trial. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. God help me, I can do no other. That's the basic understanding that most of us have of what he said at that point, and he concludes from that point, and he is excused from the trial. And they go on for quite some time. To some degree, part of this is partying and socialization, but they are meeting and convening. But Frederick the Wise understands that the Pope intends to kill him, and so he has him kidnapped and taken to a secret location, which is one of his many houses. Frederick the Wise is a king with a number of lavish houses, which we would call castles. But who is Frederick the Wise? Who is it that God brings? Listen, under the sovereignty of God, here Luther is on trial for his life. The Pope clearly wants him dead and has indicated that. And God brings somebody to step forward and to protect him. The Father of mercies steps forward and protects him. 
Frederick the Wise is a devout Roman Catholic. He had the largest collection in Europe. The, he had the largest collection of relics. He had 19,000 relics. Relics, of course, are anything that was related to the cross, or the death, or the resurrection of Christ. Most of them were bogus. The overwhelming majority of them were bogus. It was said once that if all of the thorns from the crown were collected, they'd be enough to build a bridge. Uh, it was absurd how many of the things had been spikes or, or twigs taken from the cross, supposedly, and stuff. At any rate, he had 19,000. Now, let me translate that for you. What is a relic? I just told you kind of what it is. What's the value of a relic? Why did he collect them? Because the Pope had indicated he had assigned a value to every relic, all 19,000. That if you looked at this relic, you would get so many days out of purgatory. Just by gazing upon it. And so on special feast days throughout the year, Frederick the Wise would bring all of these relics out and put them out. And people would travel all over Europe to gaze upon these relics and get time off in hell. That's who Frederick the Wise was. But Frederick the Wise listened to Martin Luther. He reasoned, he read his Bible, and he questioned. Listen to that again. He listened to somebody challenging the obvious tyranny and corruption. He reasoned, he read his Bible, and he questioned. And Frederick the Wise knew the hearts of men. He knew that the jealousy of the Pope was going to overcome Declare the declaration of Charles V. And so he himself, Frederick the Wise, kidnapped him, if you will, in order to keep him safe. And he made him safe. At the conclusion of the Diet of Worms, a death sentence was issued against Luther and against anybody who aided him. Execution for Luther and execution for anybody who aided him. Look at your text here today in 2 Corinthians. First of all, you can look at it in your Bible, but take for a second real quick here and look on the back of your bulletin so that you'll see what's here. On the back of your bulletin, I have put there a memory card for you, which you can detach and have. This is a very critical verse. Now, I recognize it's a little bit longer than some of the other verses we've had in the past. I commend you today. I am telling you as your pastor, memorize this. Put it in your car, put it in your refrigerator, put it in your Bible as a bookmark. Whatever you need to do, you need to memorize this verse. Now, if you struggle with memory, let me assure you, first of all, you're capable of much more than you think. Way much more. Most of you remember that during the latter parts of the Reformation, under Bloody Mary, several men were put to death called Latimer and Ridley and Thomas Cranmer. Hugh Latimer was one of those men. He memorized all of the New Testament letters in Greek. We're capable of much more than we think. So let's memorize this, because why do you need to memorize this? Because putting on the full armor of God, which includes the sword of the Spirit, is just this. We're, we're taking the sword of the Spirit out, and we're ready to use it. Who are we going to use it against? We're going to use it against the Father of lies. To be reminded about the eternal truths, of the Father of mercies. When the Father of lies comes and tries to overwhelm us, as he did Martin Luther in every saint since before, we remember the Word of God. We remember the Word of God and the nature of God who cannot change. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction 
so that we ourselves will be able to comfort others with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. How often are you going to need that verse? If I told you, it would scare you. You're going to need that verse. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 1. He is saying that affliction is part and parcel of the Christian life. And therefore, we must arm ourselves with the precious truths of God's word and nature. That he is the father of mercies. When the father of lies comes knocking. In this passage that we looked at 1 Corinthians, it declares here that God is that God, and that we are comforted greatly, and we should be looking for that comfort. And Martin Luther says, here I stand, and F. Frederick the Wise shows up, and the Father of mercies secures him, gets him where he needs to be, and protects him. God is sovereign, and nothing can happen to Martin Luther if it is God's will that Martin Luther be preserved, and apparently it is in this case. And he delights in that reality. I want you to look, keep your finger there, Second Corinthians, and turn your Bible to Matthew 4. As you turn there, hopefully you recognize that that's the temptation, the wilderness temptation of the Lord Christ. In Matthew 4, the temptation, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and no, that's not hyperbole, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered, he takes out the word of God. The Father of lies comes to him, and he relies upon the Father of mercies. And he's aware that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus is aware when Satan comes to him, he has already memorized Psalm 126. He that watches over Israel, Psalm 121. He that watches over Israel slumbers not or sleeps. My God's looking after me. Jesus remembers that God used to send birds to feed Elijah. My God's looking after me. My God will take care of me. I don't have to take matters into my own hands during this earthly ministry. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. He remembers the Father of mercies. Well, you're aware there's three times of this as it continues there. But look at verse 11. The father of lies has come to him, and the father of mercies is present. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. The word of God comes to us and ministers to us. The Holy Spirit dwelling in believers comes and ministers to us and comforts us and strengthens us as it did the Lord Christ even there. That's the beginning of his ministry. Turning your Bibles to Luke 22 as we look at the end of his ministry. Luke 22 and the Garden of Gethsemane. And you're familiar again with the wrestling that takes place in Luke 22 as he is wrestling with what is going on, beginning in verse 39. And it describes what's going on. He's praying, and this is described in other Gospels as well, in considerable detail in the Gospel of John. And he's crying out to God. He's pleading with God for another way. And yet he resigns himself. I want what you want, God. Your will be done. Look at verse 43. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. What a remarkable thing again, the reality here of the presence of the power of God, the presence of the mercy of God. 
And we see the Father of mercies present in every situation, whether it's a manifestation through an angel or just simply the reality of the presence of God, that he's present everywhere, Psalm 139, that he's present everywhere. We know that reality. I want to remind you of something that I heard years ago. Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, told children that any time they saw difficulty, any time they saw difficulty, they should look for the helpers. That when you see these great difficulties that occur on television and are broadcast over and over and over again, great calamities and difficulties, he said, yes, those things exist in the world, but look for the helpers. When you think about the Vegas, Las Vegas shooting, and all the people who died and were shot, you don't have to look very far to see the helpers, to see the ones that are there. Well, that analogy is true for Christians, that we are to look for the mercies of God. Christians, in times of difficulty and chaos and calamity and affliction and rejection and wounds and persecution, can look for the Father of mercies to manifest his presence with mercies. Do you have afflictions? Yes, you do. Do you have challenges and trials? Yes, there are. And the Father of mercies is present in every situation. He that watches over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. And the Gospel of Matthew ends with the words of the Lord Christ, Lo, I am with you always. The mercies are always present. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there are always the mercies of God present in every situation, and we can look for them, and we will find them as we look. In Hebrews chapter 11, as it describes the great difficulties of the people who served God faithfully, Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 32, we see some more of the difficulties and challenges that Christians face. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains, caves and holes in the ground. The father of lies seeks to bring great difficulty upon the people of God, and the father of mercies is always present. He is always aware of what's going on. We see it very clearly in Martin Luther's life. We see it very clearly in the life of the Lord Christ. We see it throughout the scriptures. And with very little difficulty, we can see it in our own lives. Listen, God is not a compromising God, but he is a mercy-loving God. He's not a compromising God, but he's a mercy-loving God. And as we come to understand these things, we rejoice that he is the father of mercies. And we need to ourselves take this sword up, this word of God, and we need to wield it as we understand 
who we're up against. John chapter 8, the Lord Christ tells us who we're up against. And John chapter 8 is where he sets it very clear. John chapter 8, verse 44, he says this. Well, verse 43 puts the context to it. He's talking to the Pharisees. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Lying is the native tongue of the devil. It's his natural language. He is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45 says, But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. We must believe Christ, who is the truth, the way, and the life, and we need to cling to the Father of mercies. In this process, we find ourselves with two different forces, very real, not equal forces, but two forces, the reality of God and the reality of spiritual warfare. Look at your bulletin under the title of the sermon. I put a, a quote here from Martin Luther from his collected works. This is from Martin Luther as he describes our condition of the devil coming and trying to ride us as though we were a horse. In short, we are under the God of this world, away from the work and spirit of the true God. We are held captive to his will, as Paul says to Timothy, so that we cannot will anything but what he wills. He's talking about our nature before we come to Christ. For he is that strong man, armed, who guards his own palace in such a way that those whom he possesses are in peace. And we were at peace with his reign, the reign of the devil in our lives before we were converted so as to prevent them from stirring up any thought or feeling against him. Otherwise, the kingdom of Satan, being divided against itself, would not stand, whereas Christ affirms that it does stand. And this we do readily and willingly according to the nature of the will. We come into the world as servants of the devil, as aliens and strangers in Christ, which would not be a will if it were compelled, for compulsion is rather, so to say, unwill. But if a stronger one comes, referring to the Lord Christ, if a stronger one comes who overcomes him, the devil, and takes us as his spoil, then through his spirit we are again slaves and captives, though this is royal freedom, so that we readily will and do what he wills. Thus the human will is placed between the two like a beast of burden. If God rides it, it wills and goes where God wills. As the psalm says, I am become as a beast before you, and I am always with you. If Satan rides it, it wills and goes where Satan wills. Nor can it choose to run to either of the two riders or to seek him out, but the riders themselves contend for the possession and control of it. That is Martin Luther's own summary of the bondage of the will which he thought was his most important work at the end of his life. We're to flee to Christ. We're to ask ourselves, will we, will we be ridden by the Father of mercies or the Father of lies? And to conclude that we, will be, that we want Christ to come and control us 
We want Christ to bring our rebel souls into subjection. We want the Spirit of Christ to call forth in us His fruit and His gifts. We want to remember the very nature of God. When the Father of lies comes, we want to remember the Father of mercies. We want God's glory in impossible circumstances, and we will play, we will incur circumstances that seem very impossible. And we want to look for and expect to find mercies in the times of difficulty and affliction. We want to look for and expect to find mercies from the Father of mercies in times of difficulty and affliction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort others in their affliction with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Will you pray with me, please? God, we pray that we might see you rightly, that we might see all things rightly, that we would not be ignorant of Satan's devices. Indeed, his craft and power are great. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we rejoice in resting in your everlasting arms, Heavenly Father, as the Father of mercies. That whatever you ordain is right, because it is good and wise and timely and perfect. And no one, as Nebuchadnezzar learned, can ward off your hand. Or say to you, what have you done? God, you are that being that which nothing greater can be conceived. And we do praise your holy name. Grant then, Holy Spirit, that we would abide in you and delight in our Father. Through Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I remind you that we do have our evening study tonight at 5 o'clock, and the ladies do meet at 10 o'clock this week. Will you stand to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Give you peace, now and forever. Amen.
Thank you.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reformed Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.